Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. We are awash in information. Estimates are that 2.5 quintillion bytes of data are produced every day. That's everything from the data from space probes to your photos on Facebook. Google alone processes approximately 3.5 billion requests per day. But as T.S. Eliot so aptly said back in 1934, where is the knowledge we have lost in information? From the billions of items posted on Facebook to tens of thousands of so-called news sites and bloggers around the world, how is it even possible to begin to separate it all, to process it, to know fact from fiction? Never before in human history or human evolution have we encountered such a monumental problem. As a result, the way we approach it has to take the best thinking tools we've evolved and transform them to meet the needs of the 21st century and beyond. We're going to talk about this today with my guest, Daniel J. Levitin. Dr. Daniel Levitin is the James McGill Professor of Neuroscience and Behavioral Neuroscience at McGill University, where he also teaches in the Graduate School of Business, and he's the Dean of the College of Arts and Humanities at the Minerva School at KGI. He's the author of the previous bestsellers, This Is Your Brain on Music and The Organized Mind. It is my pleasure to welcome Daniel Levitin back to this program to talk about A Field Guide to Lies critical thinking in the information age. Daniel, welcome back to the program. Thanks for inviting me. It's great to have you here. When we look historically, can we find another period where we've had to adapt so dramatically to understanding and processing and dealing with so much information around us? Well, I, I don't think we can, although if you look back through history, there have been alarms sounded about various technological developments that were going to rot our minds. Uh, Seneca the Elder in, in ancient Greece complained about uh, writing things down was, was going to cause problems because people would no longer talk to each other. And then, of course, with the printing press, people were worried that the great proliferation of books would cause us to read things that were not as important as the classics that had been handwritten and hand transcribed. But now really is a different time because um, as the old New Yorker cartoon goes, on the internet nobody knows you're a dog. And by extension, um, facts and pseudo-facts and science and pseudoscience look an awful lot alike on the web. And it's increasingly troublesome. I guess you, as I did read the new statistics that uh, people under the age of 25 are more and more getting all their news from Facebook. Uh, so along with the things that we are taking in that are true, we're taking in a lot of stuff that isn't true, that's either been manipulated intentionally or distorted unintentionally by people who just don't know better. And all of this is calling for, as you talk about in A Field Guide to Lies, a degree of critical thinking and a set of skills that most of the people that are getting their information this way, A, don't possess, and B, that the predicate for it is not being laid out in the way we're teaching young people today. Right. Uh, I think the primary mission of educators has to shift. It's not about cramming little brains full of facts anymore because, uh, as Adam Gopnik, the New Yorker writer, said, but by the time a teacher explains the difference between elegy and eulogy, everybody in the class has already Googled it. So it can't be about information transmission anymore. And this is fundamental to the new curriculum we're designing 
at the Minerva schools uh, at KGI here in San Francisco that you mentioned at the right. top of the segment. Uh, it's about critical thinking first, uh, among other skills that we think people know. And I think this can trickle down to even 12-year-olds. I think every 12-year-old should know basic things like um, there's a hierarchy of information sources. Some are simply better than others. Uh, when you encounter a claim like this product was rated the best, what you want to, might want to know is, well, rated by whom? And what question were they asked? What were they actually rating? Part of the problem, though, and, and I'm sure you're seeing this in other places, maybe not at Minerva, at KGI, certainly, but a resistance on the part of, of many edu- long-time educators to really making this transition. Well, you know, the problem, uh, Jeff, is that lectures are a really great way to teach. You can reach hundreds or a thousand people at once if you've got an auditorium big enough, but lectures are not a great way to learn. And so I think uh, teachers at all levels are reluctant to try something new. They know how they've been doing it all along. They're comfortable with it. They've invested a great deal of time in doing what they do. But I don't think that's a good enough motivation to keep on doing it. And, of course, the lectures now can be available to millions upon millions of people on a YouTube video anywhere. Well, right. I mean, if you want to get the world's greatest lecturer, it's out there on Coursera or Khan Academy or YouTube or any of the other uh, sources. But that's not real learning. Learning, you know, what we know about the science of learning is the way people acquire information is through active learning, not just being told something, but by discovering it for themselves. Um, And the tools to do this are not beyond the capability of the average 12-year-old. It's just that we haven't, as a society, placed a priority on conveying those tools. Talk a little bit about what we know as the scientific method and how that's applicable to what we're talking about. Well, uh, the scientific method underlies um, really almost all contemporary knowledge. It's it's a way of uh, approaching the unknown, formulating hypotheses, testing them, and then drawing conclusions. I'll point out, for anybody who's read the newspapers on diet, for example, uh, and has been frustrated by the changing story that... You know, first you had to avoid fats, and then and you were supposed to eat carbs, and then you were supposed to avoid carbs, and it was better to have protein, and a little fat was okay, and steak was bad, and then it was good, and then it was bad, and then it was good again. It, it's hard to follow all of this, right? But this is the way science works. I don't mean that science changes its mind all the time or that it's unreliable. I mean that science is based on the idea that as new information comes in, if it's credible, if it comes from carefully conducted studies, that you need to change your opinion. I'll give you an example of the scientific method, uh, and it's the control group. And I think we're all familiar with this. Suppose I say that, um, you know, listening to Mozart an hour a day will make you do better in math. Uh, How would I go about testing that? Well, I guess I would play Mozart to some people for an hour and see if they do better in math than before they listen to the Mozart. But there's no control group. What if we had somebody do math tests an hour apart and we gave them something else to do besides listening to Mozart? That's a proper experiment. 
talk a little bit about how this relates to how we view experts and expertise today, because that's also part of the problem with this discussion. You're right, Jeff. And, and there's been an erosion uh, in the respect for expertise, uh, partly initiated by Wikipedia. So Lauren Sanger and Jimmy Wales, who created this wonderful resource that we all use, stated when they created it that they wanted anybody to be able to contribute. Uh, there was, you know, experts had no special authority over Wikipedia, and they still don't. And so the great thing is they were able to build up this tremendous resource, now the world's largest encyclopedia, through crowdsourcing. Anybody could contribute. The problem, Jeff, is that, well, anybody can contribute. So you could open a page that describes uh, a particular drug and its side effects, and for all you know, the last edit was made by a 12-year-old reading an outmoded, outdated article. And part of the problem with so much of the information is not only its inaccuracy, but the fact that so much of it becomes outdated so quickly. Right. That, that's, you know, this gets back to the idea that science is constantly updating right. its understanding. Um, we, there's a jargony word for it called Bayesian reasoning, but that's just some people trying to be fancy. The basic concept is that as new information comes in, you reevaluate your position. Investors and business people do this all the time. Journalists do it. Lawyers, judges do it. Uh, we all need to do it. Uh, new information comes in. We need to evaluate it carefully. What we're seeing instead of that in so many cases, and this relates to news, it even relates to science, unfortunately, is the impact of confirmation bias in what people see. Yeah, this is a pernicious bias, um, and it's a kind of foible of the human brain that once we've made up our mind about something, the brain tends to notice all of those instances that confirm what we already thought. That's why we call it confirmation bias. And we tend to underplay or even ignore things that contradict our views. And this is playing out nowhere more vividly than with the current election cycle, the presidential election, where I think uniquely among presidential races in our country's history, a, a substantial portion of the population decided a long time ago who they were going to vote for. And now they don't want to take in any positive information about the other candidate, and they don't want to hear any negative information about their candidate. Part of it is, has to do with, with something else you talked about, and that is the way information is framed and who frames it and how. We all, yeah, we often find uh, misframing effects in the, the reports that we get. Uh, and think of it as, you know, if the frame were wide enough, you, uh, using a metaphor of a picture frame, you would see the whole picture. But if the frame is small, uh, you can get a distorted view of the picture. Take, for example, um, a, a recent headline that there were more air, airline fatalities in 2015 than in 1960. Now, that might cause you to think that flying is more dangerous now than it was in 1960. Uh, but that's not true. It, it's the wrong frame. It's the wrong uh, context. Because there are so many more flights now, and people are flying so much farther. The right way to ask the question is, what is the risk for me as an individual? Is the risk higher or lower? And you would get that by looking at the accident rate, say, per, per mile flown or per, per airline trip taken. 
And if you look at that, uh, airline fatalities are down uh, quite substantially. Talk about how we begin to teach that. How do we make people understand the way framing works, the way statistics works, the way they have to plow through this information to get to, quote-unquote, the truth? Well, first of all, I think it's a mindset. Um, It used to be if you read something in a textbook or if you got a book at the library, um, you could be pretty sure that all that information had been through a vetting process. Certainly encyclopedias had been. That doesn't mean they were infallible, but it was quite likely that they were correct. Um, nowadays, we, we have a mindset that has clung to this old way of thinking. that If we find it on the Internet, it must be true. Somebody would have said otherwise if it wasn't. Uh, but we know that it doesn't work that way. There's no gatekeeper. So I think the first step is it's a mindset that each of us needs to take a little bit of time, take a breath, pick apart these things, know which questions to ask to help us figure it out, whether we're looking at a truth, a half-truth, or, or a lie. Where do false stories fit into this equation, the, the conspiracy theories that we hear, the stories that, that really have no basis in any kind of provable fact, but that become mythology, particularly online, and, and really have a lot of power in many cases? Well, you know, this plays interestingly into the role of experts that you brought mm-hmm. up earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that, the, you know, when possible, we should seek out experts and find out what they think. So uh, what's your favorite conspiracy theory? Is it the, do, you, do you like the one about how we didn't actually land on the moon or that the Twin Towers were an American government plot? Visit the conspiracy theory websites. Uh, you see that they'll say things like, um, well, uh, the, the way the buildings fell was peculiar, and that could only have been caused by uh, you know, internally placed charges. Uh, jet fuel couldn't cause that kind of a toppling of a building. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not an expert in demolitions. And, you know, if somebody says it, maybe they're right. But you can go and you can ask demolition experts. And you can ask people who know about the science of chemistry and physics of jet fuel explosions. And they'll tell you, yep, that that is exactly how a building would fall if a jet engine uh, fuel explosion occurred. So um, a lot of the conspiracy theories dry up when you start talking to experts. But, of course, the conspiracy theorists have an answer for that, which is that the so-called experts were part of the conspiracy. And that they're part of the cover-up, et cetera, et cetera. But I, I, you know, I, I don't think so. I don't think you can buy every demolitions expert in the country. Climate change is another conspiracy theory, really. Uh, every, every bona fide... Um, uh, you know, rigorous and authenticated scientist uh, believes that uh, climate change is real. And they may disagree about the sources or the solutions, but there, there's no real scientific controversy. The people who say it's not real are people with no training in the subject. The other area that you talk a lot about in A Field Guide to Lies, which we've touched on very little, is the whole idea of, of statistics and how they are manipulated over and over again. Yeah, this is one of my favorite topics, and I think um, people get away with it because most of us are, well, many of us anyway, are afraid of numbers. And we figure if there's a number on it, uh, it must be true, and it'd be too much trouble to try and sort it out if it's not true. But, you know, there's some basic steps we can take when we look at statistics or charts or graphs. 
what, in a graph, are the axes labeled? If you're looking at a bunch of tick marks on a line, are there even numbers next to them? And if there are numbers, do you know what the numbers represent? Um, you know, there are a lot of ways to distort a graphic uh, to make it say something different than uh, it really says. Daniel Levitin, the book is A Field Guide to Lies, Critical Thinking in the Information Age. Daniel, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you Good to talk to you again.